welcome to Contact Chai. Today's episode of Shabbat Replay is from our November 10th Friday Night Shabbat. Rabbi Stephen delivered a drosh on the importance of empathy in overcoming conflict and in recognizing that shared pain is often the root of empathy. Take it away, Rabbi. Shalom. It's so nice to be in this space with all of you. You're here. You've arrived. So I want you to take a moment to just recognize that and take a deep breath. Like seriously, take a deep breath. Like relax those shoulders. Maybe even reach into your pocket and turn your phone on silent. Or even airplane mode. I promise you that the world outside of this space will still be there. It'll still be there when we're done here. But for now, for now you're here. You're here, and I am so glad that each and every one of you are here. So one of my favorite midrashim, my favorite rabbinic stories, talks about how God created several miraculous objects at the end of the sixth day of creation. In this mythic account of creation, as the sun begins to set, and God has already prepared herself for some rest. So this was like the nth hour to get things done. And on this cusp of Shabbat, God creates these miraculous objects, which include things like the well that will follow the Israelites through the desert on their journey, or the talking donkey that Balaam, the prophet, encounters before he intends to curse but accidentally blesses our ancestors. These different miraculous objects. And one way to picture this is God is relaxed and enshrined in her infinite wisdom and is slowly making, fashioning these last few things, kind of like putting icing on the cake, right? Like like it's the last little bit you're going to do. Another way to picture this is that God is like, oh crap, Shabbat is about to be here. And I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. And this is the image, honestly, that speaks to me a little bit more because this is actually what my Shabbat preparation is more like. And the only, the only reason that I seem maybe a bit more calm and a bit more grounded in this moment is that our lovely staff forces me to be here at 545. And so I'm about 45 minutes ahead of all of you in arriving in this space. What I also love about this image is that it means that however you are coming into this space is exactly how you need to be. It's exactly how you need to be. So if you're coming to the space a little stressed from the CTA, that's okay. And if you're coming to the space so joyful to be here together, that's great. And if you're coming to the space holding all of the pain of what's unfolding in Israel and Gaza, or maybe even heartbreak that you're carrying in your own life, that is okay. And if you are feeling overwhelmed by the work week and still need some decompression time, that is also okay. However you've arrived in this space is exactly how you should be. And together, we're going to use this space to create something transformational, something that we all need to relax a little bit and breathe a little deeper and connect with each other and just be here and just be here. So if you know the words, if you don't know the words, if these melodies are familiar, if these melodies are unfamiliar, if this is your 100th time at Mishkan or your first time at Mishkan, you are so welcome here. I am so glad you're here.
As the holiday season approaches, I often think about Leo Tolstoy's observation at the beginning of Anna Karenina, that all happy families are alike, yet each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So in a few weeks, we'll celebrate Thanksgiving. And while there are a number of rituals associated with this holiday, turkey, stuffing, cranberry sauce, the argument over which is the best, most essential ingredient on the table, they are all secondary to the ritual of gathering around the table with family and friends. And people do. The days that come before and after Thanksgiving are the busiest travel periods of the entire year as millions of people find their way across the country to visit children and parents and grandparents and so on. And for those of us who do make this pilgrimage, and I want to acknowledge that some of us cannot or do not spend the holiday with family, it's not always something that we look forward to, at least not completely. Thanksgiving is founded on a number of myths. The story of Thanksgiving, for example, And one of these is the idea of intergenerational family bliss. Probably best captured by Norman Rockwell in his painting Freedom from Want, which is part of a a four-piece series inspired by FDR's 1941 State of the Union. And you might know this painting. The scene is a family gathering. The grandfather looks on proudly while the grandmother carefully sets a turkey down on a crowded table as everyone smiles at each other in anticipation. So this isn't what my Thanksgiving looks like. I don't think my Thanksgiving has ever actually looked this way. And I know that's true for so many of us in this room. There are people missing from the table. Some have died. Some couldn't make it. Some chose not to make it. And for those who are there, it's this careful game of matchmaker meets musical chairs. People who can't sit next to each other because of an old grudge or because they'll start talking politics or because they always argue after drinking all day. Or maybe it's that tragedy that we don't talk about anymore, but it's so present in the room or the pressure of bills or the pain of someone's declining health. Each unhappy family, however mild or severe this unhappiness might be, is unhappy in its own way. When we open up the Torah this week, we meet a very unhappy family. Sarah, the matriarch, has died. Her husband, Abraham, is forced to bury her alone. His two sons are gone. He had forced his eldest, Ishmael, along with his mother Hagar, to leave home years ago, and they have not been seen since. And his other son Isaac, having recently experienced the trauma of almost being sacrificed by his father, has struck out on his own. And so Abraham sits at the table by himself. And the text is ambiguous. It's unclear whether he will ever see his sons again, whether anyone will ever join him back home before he dies at the end of this parsha, at the end of this reading. So perhaps hoping to bring Isaac back to the table, Abraham proposes that his servant find a wife for him, returning to their ancestral homeland to see if there are any suitable matches among the extended family. And the servant asks a very reasonable question. What if this woman doesn't want to come with a stranger to a place that she has never been, to marry a man she has never met? It's a good question. Perhaps I can find Isaac and bring him there 
with me. And Abraham, hearing this, panics. Do not take my son back there. If she refuses to come back with you, I'll forgive you. You did your best. You did a good job. But do not take my son away from me. Abraham is so desperate to keep the remains of his family, however unhappy they may be, intact. But the question remains, where is Isaac anyway? Some rabbis say he decided to study Torah to better understand a God that would have commanded the terrible deed of child sacrifice and maybe even make sense of why his father obeyed in the first place. Other rabbis say he sought out his half-brother Ishmael, now better understanding the wounds that their father had inflicted on him. And if you say that Isaac, so distraught, so lost, wandered so far that he reached the Garden of Eden. But wherever he may be, he is not sitting at the table with Abraham. It's too hard. It's too complicated. It's too painful. And while I imagine that Abraham's desperation to find a wife for Isaac comes from a good place, it's not what Isaac needs at least not right now. When confronted with difficult emotions, our impulse is so often to find a solution for them. But sometimes what we need most is to simply have someone listen to our feelings. The researcher Brene Brown teaches that this is the key difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy tries to fix, to reason, to put a silver lining on how we feel. It's not that bad, is it? Empathy is about creating space for our feelings, including feelings that might not actually have or need a solution. Abraham may have abundant sympathy for Isaac, but he seems to lack empathy in this moment. And I imagine that this is why when we do encounter Isaac in the Torah this week, he is wandering alone, lasuach basadeh, talking to the emptiness in the field around him. He doesn't need a wife. He needs to be heard in all of his pain and his rage and his sadness. Of course, there is the trauma of having nearly been slaughtered, his father binding him hand and foot at the top of Mount Moriah after he had asked him again and again, where was the animal that they are going to sacrifice? And then the fact that he doesn't know where his half-brother is, a relationship that was already complicated by the animosity between their mothers and torn apart when Ishmael and Hagar were forced to leave home. And his mother has just died, perhaps in front of him, As one rabbinic account tells us, Sarah being unable to cope with the shock of hearing her son tell her what his father had just done to him. And so feeling like no one, no one in the world, not even his father understands him, Isaac gives up his seat at the table and isolates himself. This is an understandable response to loss, to anger, to grief, and to feel like none of those emotions are being seen or heard by those around us. It's a response that I imagine many of us know well. And it is also a response that our tradition pushes strongly against. When we have experienced tragedy, when we are stuck in the complicated tangle of our feelings, Judaism asks us 
to be in community. We bury our dead in community. Opening the doors of our homes during Shiva, we mourn in community. Coming to Minyan or Shabbat at a service like this to recite the mourner's Kaddish, as we'll do when we close the service together, we remember in community. Earlier this week, we just closed Shaloshim, the 30-day mourning period, since our Jewish brothers, sisters, and siblings were brutally murdered on October 7th. We are still waiting to hear word about the hundreds of hostages still held in Gaza. We watch as the death count continues to rise, so many Israelis and so many Palestinians dead, and we mourn the loss of innocent lives, too many of them, too many of them children. We feel the rise of anti-Semitism around us, both in the world and even in the city we call home. For some of us, this is an old story experienced by our family for generations. And for others, this is strange and new and unfamiliar. But for all of us, it's too much. It's too much right now. And in the midst of all this, Thanksgiving comes. And we're asked to gather around the table to have a meal with our families. And maybe you'll find solace there. I hope you do. But perhaps this is a moment of adding a new kind of unhappiness to this family gathering as you sit with people you have a hard time connecting with, or perhaps people who are now more difficult to talk to, who have different thoughts or opinions on what is unfolding overseas and in our country. Or maybe you're not even sure where the conversation will lead. And this is stressful. This is adding anxiety to an already uneasy trip home. I've talked to several folks who are scared to ask their relatives what they think about everything that is going on, worried that this is going to start a fight that none of us have the energy to engage in. But what I have heard most, and what I have also felt, is that we are all talking past each other, that we are all yelling to be heard. And in response, instead of listening, other people just yell louder. That our particular pain, our anger, our sadness is not being held in this moment by anyone, but especially not by the people who matter most, our families. And I'm not just talking about our families of origin, but our friends and people we share a community with, including this community, other Jews and the people who love us, our family. A lot of the tables we have become accustomed to sitting at feel complicated, feel uncomfortable, maybe even feel unsafe right now. The temptation is to give up our seat. The temptation is to wander alone like Isaac, speaking to the emptiness in the field or Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and hoping and hoping that somebody will hear us if we just shout loud enough. But when we have experienced tragedy and we have experienced tragedy, Judaism asks us to be in community. When Abraham dies, Isaac and Ishmael find their way back to each other to bury their father. I don't know if this was a moment of reconciliation. Perhaps even while they shoveled dirt into his grave, they still nursed the wounds that had been inflicted upon them, the wounds that they had inflicted on each other. The Torah doesn't tell us if or how their relationship was healed, but what the Torah does tell us is that in the midst of despair, 
in the midst of tragedy, as they bury a father who had both hurt and cared for them, each in their own way, they realize that they can still mourn together. That they can hold each other's pain, rage, and sadness, even if it's not the same as theirs, even if they don't agree with it or understand it. Repair is not a prerequisite for empathy, nor does holding another's pain discount our own. There's a writer and activist named Dylan Marone who published a book last year called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. It's based on a podcast of the same name where he sought out conversations with folks who had left hateful messages on his online content. His mission was simple, to get to know them and to give them an opportunity to get to know him and to create space for how the other was feeling. And he talked to some really difficult people. Some were homophobic, Others disliked immigrants, and a few were overtly racist, all identities that attacked Marone's identity. He found an incredible power in holding space for their feelings. Did it convince them that they were wrong? Not necessarily. But it did remind them that the person they were talking to, the person that was generating the content that they were leaving comments on, is human. And it also reminded the people listening to his podcast that these individuals are human beings as well, that we're all part of this large, messy, and sometimes uniquely unhappy family called humanity. It can feel a lot easier and a lot better to tell people why they're wrong. Trust me, I enjoy it sometimes. To talk facts, to talk policy points, this is solutioning. This is sympathy. Contending with someone else's fear, anger, and pain is so much harder. It can feel overwhelming, especially when we're already holding so much of our own. And when the stakes are high, just as they are at this moment, when it feels like our moral compass is spinning, holding space for someone else, especially someone who we don't agree with, can feel like we're conceding ground. But here's the thing. We're not. Dylan Marone writes, Empathy is not an endorsement. Empathy is not an endorsement. Empathizing with someone you profoundly disagree with does not suddenly compromise your own deeply held beliefs and endorse theirs. Empathy is not an endorsement. What empathy does do is it allows for us to sit at the table together. And we need to sit at the table together because that's how any of us are going to get through this. We cannot bury our dead alone. We should not mourn or remember them by ourselves. And this, this is what is in our power right now, to come together in community, just like you are doing right now. Just like you are doing right now. And I guarantee you might be sitting next to someone who doesn't see eye to eye with you on everything. Just as you're doing right now, to create space for us to grieve together, for us to be afraid together, for us to be angry together, and yes, even to celebrate together and heal together and hold each other in love. And even if we don't agree or understand each other, to say, I hear you, to look at the person next to you and say, I see you. So when you're ordained as a rabbi, you get to choose a verse from the Torah to be included in the program next to your like, little picture, just so people know who you are as you're like walking up to the stage. The verse I chose was Exodus 23.9. Yedatem et nefesh hager, ki garim haitem. You know, you know the soul of the stranger, 
because you were strangers. Our tradition recognizes that our pain is not brokenness. Our pain is a source of incredible power because it is the foundation of an empathy that facilitates connection at the very moment that we are tempted to pull away from one another. Whether you are born into this family or you chose this family, or you're here because you love someone who's in this family and therefore you're part of this family too. This is our inheritance. This is our task, to take a seat at this table and to make sure that there are seats at the table for each other. Because we are family. You're all my family. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening. Thank you.